0: This is Crimes of the Centuries. The spree that started in the 1990s began with fairly petty crimes. Reports came into police about valuable items disappearing from the homes of older women in Mexico City. Soon, a pattern seemed to emerge. The items vanished after the women had been visited by a healthcare or social worker. Soon, police pieced together a description of the culprit. A stocky woman with supposedly masculine features who was always polite enough at the door that her victims never thought twice about letting her inside. But then came the first murder. 64-year-old Maria de la Luz Gonzalez opened the door to her apartment and, oblivious to any danger let a stranger walk inside. The next time someone entered her apartment, they found Maria's dead body. She'd been strangled. I took several more bodies before Mexico City police conceded that they might have a serial killer on their hands. With that notice to the public came another. The culprit, police said, surely wasn't a cisgender woman after all, but rather a transgender woman they dubbed El Mataviajitas, or Old Lady Killer. Note that the L in Spanish is a masculine modifier. After alerting the public to this theory, law enforcement descended on the gay and trans communities in Mexico City, arresting many without probable cause. Sex workers were targeted too. From a documentary by Next Day Story.
1: Police assumed that the killer was a transgendered, due to witnesses' descriptions, and arrested 49 prostitutes who were all released when their prints didn't match those collected from the crime scenes.
0: By the time the truth was uncovered, the whole thing ended up in embarrassment for Mexico City, where authorities' biases, bigotry, and inexperience allowed a killer to roam free for years, ultimately tallying more than three dozen victims. When you Google the name Juana Barraza, you're quick to see the phrase la mataviejitas, la being a feminine modifier. That's because the killer in this story was not a transgender woman, but rather a cis one. It's understandable that Mexico City police had a hard time accepting this early on in their investigation because historically only some 15% of serial killers are believed to be women on top of that, city police didn't have much experience with serial killers, period. So they were kind of feeling around in the dark trying to make sense of what the hell they were dealing with. To their credit, they did reach out to more experienced agencies, but sometimes more heads aren't necessarily better.
2: Too many cooks, many cooks. Too many too many cooks. Too many
0: cooks To understand how all this unfolded, though. We should back up and talk about Juana Barraza's early years. She was born in 1957, about an hour and a half north of Mexico City, in a small town within a Mexican state called Hidalgo. Her mother, Justa, who later was described as a very young sex worker at the time she first started having children, but considering she was only 13 years old when that first child came, It actually means she wasn't a sex worker at all because there's no way to consent at that age. In short, Juana's mother was a sex trafficking victim. Her father was a 19-year-old man named Trinidad who would later say that he quote-unquote rescued Husta from the owners of a nightclub who he said were the ones trafficking the girl into sex work. Trinidad moved Husta in with him, you know, to protect her. How he would consider himself her savior when he soon impregnated her not once but twice is beyond me, but so it goes. Husta gave birth to two of Trinidad's daughters, though plenty of other women bore Trinidad's babies too. He worked as a truck driver and apparently used his time on the road to cheat as often as possible, fathering an estimated 30 children over the years. While he was gallivanting, Husta, herself only a child, was left alone for long stretches with her two babies. Finally, she got fed up with the situation and left one daughter with some uncles while she moved with the other girl, Juana, bouncing around the region until she met and married a man named Refurio. Jana's stepfather took her on like his own child and also fathered two more girls with Justa. Given Justa's rough start in life, it's probably not surprising that she wasn't the most balanced of mothers. Juana rarely spoke to her because she drank so heavily and was physically and emotionally abusive. Refurio wasn't a great parental figure either, though. He thought it was a waste of time for girls to get proper schooling when their whole point in life was to become satisfactory housewives. As such, Juana's education wasn't a priority at all to anyone. She barely learned to read or write beyond her own name. Now, when Juana was about 13 years old, the same age her mother had been when she'd been rescued by her father, Justa seemed determined to set her daughter on the same path she'd been forced to take.
2: Her mother reportedly sold her to a man named Jose Lugo in exchange for three beers.
0: This is Simon Whistler, who covered this case on The Casual Criminalist.
2: First, Barazza, thought it was all some sort of sick joke, but it soon became clear that her mother wasn't coming back. She was reportedly abused by Lugo for four years, enduring two pregnancies, which, depending on the source, both resulted in miscarriages or saw the poor teenager give birth to a son.
0: I have to say I agree with Whistler, who declared,
2: That is some f***ed up shit.
0: Seems fair. Juana's uncles were apparently worried about the girl and asked Husta after her often, But Husta repeatedly said the girl was fine and was living with this Jose fellow by choice. Even
2: if she did, she's 12 years old. Just not voluntary. The person is like being manipulated by someone who is their intellectual superior by, what, 20 years? That is not voluntary. There is nothing voluntary about that.
0: Touché. It took about four years for the uncles to finally intervene and rescue Juana from her abuser's home. In later interviews, she made it clear that she held her mother primarily responsible for the abuse she had endured.
2: Braza recounted these traumatic memories through a stream of tears in the interrogation room. It was because of this she explained that she always held a deep-seated hatred for older women.
0: That hatred might have been contained toward Husta specifically, but as fate had it, Husta wasn't long for this world. She died in her 30s of cirrhosis of the liver related to her alcoholism. After that, Juana, already a teenage mother, moved to Mexico City. Let's face it, she had not been set up for success.
1: She underwent several failed marriages, as well as gave birth to four children.
0: It does seem she loved her children and tried to provide for them, working odd jobs as she was able. It wasn't easy because her years essentially in captivity, being held by this man who bought her for three beers meant that she had essentially had an education on par with her illiterate mother. She couldn't afford to live in safe neighborhoods, and predictably, that led to her children being raised in dangerous parts of town. Her oldest son died in a gang shooting when he was only 24 years old. Juana apparently was racked with guilt, which translated into fury toward her mother again. The logic makes a sad kind of sense if you follow along, Had Juana not been trafficked as a child by her mother, maybe she would have been in a position to better protect her children. She reasoned that any shortcomings she had as a parent were directly caused by her own mother's shortcomings. The loss of her son would mark a dark turning point in Juana's life. Now, Juana had worked a whole slew of jobs, domestic work and street vending among them, but that wasn't always enough to make ends meet sometimes she turned petty theft. She often got away with it because she didn't look like a stereotypical criminal. She was a mother after all, who dressed conservatively and had short cropped hair and raised well-mannered children whom she clearly loved. As she found financial footing, albeit through illicit means, she moved with her surviving children into a more middle-class area where neighbors noted that she and her children were friendly and pleasant. In the 1980s, as Juana was wrapping up her 20s, she was introduced to a form of freestyle amateur wrestling that was all the rage in Mexico. It was called lucha libre. Juana had been selling popcorn during matches and became enamored with the sport. It looks hard to me, like it would throw out my back, so I'm going to call it a sport. Anyway, this wrestling involved elaborate costumes and personas that were divided into two categories, that of hero versus villain. Juana wanted in. She adopted the persona of a villain, naming herself La Dama del Silencio, which translates to The Lady of Silence. It was an apt name for her, she later said, because, quote, I am quiet and keep to myself, end quote. A recent Spanish-language documentary on Netflix featured photos of her costume, which she reportedly made herself. It appeared to be a tight-fitting spandex getup in a bubblegum pink with gold or beige geometric designs spotting it. It hugged her biceps snugly and highlighted her broad waist with a large belt. Her name was sewn across the costume's back. As her tights and mask-wearing alter ego, Juana would pocket up to $30 a fight. Granted, that wasn't a ton of money to begin with, and it was a risky way to earn dough, period. Juana would often get injured during training or matches, which not only benched her from the wrestling ring, but also made it tough to perform the kind of work she otherwise did. Housekeeping and street vending both require some physicality, after all. When Juana found herself scraping for money and too injured to work for it, she would again turn to illicit means to put food on the table. Shoplifting was one habit. Another was breaking into houses and stealing valuables to hawk. Eventually, she seemed to decide that the pros of wrestling couldn't outweigh the cons, so around the year 2000, she retired from the ring. By then, she was fine-tuning a life of crime that would soon turn deadly. After a lifetime of inconsistent and petty crimes... Juana Braza had established a definite modus operandi by the late 1990s. She would appear at the doors of older, single women whose addresses she had found via lists compiling recipients of certain social programs. Dressed as a nurse or a government social worker, she would carry a stethoscope and fake ID with her, allowing her to easily gain the trust of the woman who opened the door. Once inside, she'd pill for their valuables. It was November 25th, 2002, when she escalated to murder. It's unclear what precisely set her off that day, but it seems likely that Maria de la Luz Gonzalez either confronted her with suspicions that Juana wasn't who she claimed to be, or she otherwise unwittingly said something that offended Juana. Whatever the case, Juana snapped. Next day's story again.
1: And before she knew it, Juana had taken Gonzalez down, beating and strangling her to death. In fact, Juana's wrestling background made this much easier for her to subdue the victims.
0: Maria's body was discovered the following day. Juana didn't strike again for three months, but when she did, it was
3: like the floodgates had opened. From true crime mysteries, she would then usually strangle her victims using a variety of items, including tights, phone cables, cords to household appliances, and the stethoscope. Juana would then rob the place, taking small trophies while there, such as ornaments and religious objects. Even though the police didn't seem to see a correlation at first, the media in Mexico City began reporting a strange string of murders that followed a similar pattern. Women living alone over the age of 60 were being found robbed and murdered in their homes, primarily by strangulation. See, journalists were the first to piece together the similarities. The crimes baffled the police, who was targeting the grandmothers of Mexico City. By 2003, 24 older women had been murdered. The media started to speculate it was a serial killer, given the unknown attacker the moniker El Matavijitas, or the old lady killer. But get this, police told
0: the public to ignore the media. There's no serial killer, cops insisted. This is just fake news conjured up by journalists wanting to sell newspapers and attract viewers. Because investigators set aside the idea that this might be the consistent work of a single killer, they investigated each case as its own thing and inevitably charged people who had motive and opportunity with some of the murders. Some of those people were even convicted. Meanwhile, journalists kept saying, yeah, but don't you notice that these murders are super duper similar? Isn't a serial killer possible? Brief aside on this, this happens a lot. The generally accepted and terrifying statistic is that there are 25 to 50 serial killers at work at any given time in the United States. But hey, that's at least a lot better than the country's 1970s peak when there were about 300 active serial killers. Still, when police find a case that looks strikingly like another case, they often dismiss the similarities and say, come on now, statistically, we know that most people are killed by someone they know. So this case can't be the work of a serial killer. It's got to be someone close to the victim. So they pursue that case, and sometimes they get a conviction. But guess what? Sometimes it really is a serial killer. Statistically, that's
3: true even if it's usually not. For many years, detectives dismissed the idea of a serial killer that was preying on older women. But with the death of Maria de los Angeles Rapper on October 18, 2005, the Mexico City police started to take the case seriously. This case looked a lot like the others.
2: The next day, the old woman's body was found on the floor of her living room. She had been beaten, then strangled to death barehanded. When the police arrived, they found the apartment looted and little trace of the culprit beyond a few fingerprints. Newspapers speculated that this was the latest in a long line of killings by the same culprit nicknamed El Matavietas, the Old Lady Killer.
0: Finally, police were willing to consider that maybe some of the murders really had been linked after all. They turned to international experts for help, in part because they had already lost a lot of public trust by this point, and also because they'd never knowingly dealt with a major ongoing serial killer before. Any ones they had encountered in Mexico City were uncovered with the killer's arrest. It was only in hindsight that police were typically able to say, oh, hey, that was a serial killer the whole time, and and now we've got the guy, because it was usually a guy, Behind bars. In one case, though, the accused was indeed a woman. In 2004, a robber named Araceli Vasquez Garcia was arrested after local prosecutors claimed they found one of her fingerprints on a glass at a crime scene and that relatives of the victim at that scene had identified stolen jewelry in Vasquez's possession. According to the international newspaper El Pais, both these claims would eventually be disproven. Vasquez admitted that she had robbed elderly women, but she denied having killed anyone. She was convicted for one of the slayings, however, which briefly led to media declaring her the old lady killer, until it turned out that the killings didn't stop with her arrest. Anyway, with the help of the supposed international experts, Mexico City police released a psychological profile of the kind of person they believed was at fault.
2: The Department of Justice looked at similar historical cases from around the world, like the French case of Thierry Pornon, the monster of Montmartre.
0: This was a killer active in the 1980s, believed to be responsible for the murders of more than 20 elderly women in the village of Montmartre. Really, the demographic was the most noteworthy similarity in the cases. Poulain was believed to have deployed a number of methods to attack and kill his victims. Some were beaten to death, some were asphyxiated with plastic bags around their heads, and one was reportedly forced to drink drain cleaner. Though Poulain reportedly confessed to the murders, it's worth noting he was never convicted because he died of complications from AIDS before he stood trial. Anyway, by looking at Poulain's case, profilers made a few assumptions. For example, they...
2: ...determined their killer was a man with homosexual preferences, a victim of childhood physical abuse, lived surrounded by women. He could have had a grandmother or lived with an elderly person, has resentment to that feminine figure and possesses great intelligence.
0: Neighbors of Juana's victims had passed along to police descriptions of a person they said they spotted entering the women's homes shortly before their deaths. Even though those descriptions were usually of a woman albeit sometimes a stockier woman with quote-unquote masculine features, police felt certain that their profile was correct, meaning that the culprit was either a gay man dressed as a woman or a transgender woman. And so they targeted the gay and transgender communities, leading to swaths of unjustified arrests, not to mention plenty of separate hate crimes committed under the guise of helping police flush out the killer. Some of the dozens of people, possibly more than 100 per some estimates, reported that they were abused and tear-gassed during the process. The LGBTQ plus community was outraged by the profiling, which caused a huge rift between activists and police and prosecutors. I found a brief in the Santa Fe New Mexican that ran October 28, 2005. Using some outdated language, it read, quote, Transvestites protested on Thursday against a raid by Mexico City police that forcibly rounded them up, photographed them, and took their fingerprints as part of a search for a serial killer who allegedly dresses as a woman to gain access to his victims. Since 2003, Mexico City has been gripped by a series of at least five killings, and possibly as many as 20, of older women living alone. The transvestites and transsexuals, most of whom work as male prostitutes, offered to join efforts to catch the killer, but said the October 14th raid was misdirected and had violated their civil rights. Pause, quote, You think? Quote continues. Mexico City prosecutors later acknowledged that none of the fingerprints collected in the raid matched those found at the crime scenes. They said the raid was motivated by complaints from neighbors, Transvestite groups said they doubted the killer was part of their community but have produced a wanted poster showing police sketches of the suspect, have offered to post it around the gay community, and have offered to turn in their own fingerprints on a voluntary basis, end quote. This was a mess. I mean, even then, police were still releasing conflicting descriptions of the suspect including one that allowed that the killer might be a quote-unquote robust woman. And yet the federal prosecutor said at a press conference that they were dealing with a very shrewd and careful man with a brilliant mind. I mean, if you can imagine how amateurish this investigation must have looked to terrified residents worried about older women in Mexico City, it's kind of wild. First, police said there's no serial killer, and then maybe there's a serial killer, but it's a gay man or a transgender woman. Then dozens of arrests bear out nothing, and then maybe the killer's this Vasquez woman whose fingerprint was found in a victim's house. Though, as mentioned, that evidence was bungled, and apparently it wasn't her fingerprint after all. Then they released these conflicting descriptions of either a man or a robust woman being the
3: culprit. At one point, it was thought that there might be a connection to the painting Boy in the Red Waistcoat" by Jean-Baptiste Suarez, as three victims that were killed close to each other in time owned a copy of the painting. The police also admitted later that it could have just been a coincidence.
0: They were all over the place. It's no wonder it would ultimately take Juana Braza being caught in the act for a reign of terror to come to a close. On January 25, 2006, Jose Joel Lopez-Gonzalez began his morning in typical fashion. He woke up and planned to hop on a train to head into work like any other day. His only deviation from the norm was to stop and see his landlord, a woman from whom he rented. Ana Maria Reyes-Alfero, an 82-year-old woman who lived in the Moctezuma neighborhood. Joel found that the door to Anna's place was open, so he whistled to see if he could get her attention. No reply. He went inside to look around, found that the place appeared ransacked, and spotted Anna lying on the floor of the TV room, dead. In translated court testimony, Joel said, I thought this can't be happening, and then I heard a noise and saw this woman. We looked into each other's eyes. I never spoke to her. She left calmly through the living room. I remember I walked slowly, kind of following her, went outside, and at that moment, I had the impulse to yell, stop that woman, end quote. It so happened that police were nearby, and they heeded Joel's request. They stopped Raza and found that she was carrying Anna's ID, as well as food stamps for elderly people, a cell phone, and some other suspicious items. She also had in her belongings a keychain that read, the Lady of Silence professional wrestler and female world champion. Attempting to deny she had killed Anna was clearly a fool's errand, so Juana didn't bother. She admitted it, explaining that she had asked the woman for a glass of water when Anna said something that offended her, prompting her to lash out and strangle her victim. Still, she insisted that this was the only murder she committed. The Guardian newspaper quoted her as saying, quote, I know it's a crime. I did it and I will pay for it. But just because I'm going to pay for it, that doesn't mean they're going to hang all the other crimes on me. With all due respect to the authorities, there are several of us involved in extortion and killing people. So why don't the police go after the others, too? End quote. It's a confusing statement, one that seemed to mirror the defense deployed by Araceli Vastez Garcia. I might have done something wrong, but I didn't do everything you're accusing me of which kind of, sort of, worked in Vasquez's case. She was only convicted of one murder, after all, for which she's still in prison, despite insisting to this day that she's innocent, and despite the evidence against her being quite weak. The evidence against Baraza, meanwhile, was much stronger. According to The Guardian, Barraza's fingerprints match those found at the scenes of several similar murders, including the fingerprint that had initially been misidentified as belonging to Vasquez. Another of Barraza's fingerprints was reportedly found at the scene of an attempted murder, too. While Barraza pleaded guilty to Ana Maria's murder, prosecutors charged her with more. An Associated Press report. Former female wrestler Juana Barraza has been sentenced to 759 years in jail for killing 16 elderly women. Authorities say the woman dubbed the little old lady killer terrorized Mexico City's senior citizens out of anger toward her own mother. It's worth noting that after her arrest and subsequent conviction, the old lady killings finally stopped. Though she was convicted in 16 cases... Her body count is believed to be 47 or so. There's no official life imprisonment in Mexico, which is why.
1: She will be paroled regardless in 2058 at the age of 100.
0: The individual murders of the old lady killer, while said killer was still unknown, had dominated Mexico City news for literally years. It wasn't that Mexico wasn't a dangerous place to live. In a typical year at the time, lodged some 14,000 murders, according to Human Progress data cited in the New York Post in a story earlier this year promoting a new Netflix documentary about the case.
1: No platiques con nadie. No le abras a nadie. En casi ocho años. Ancianos... That shows
0: producer Laura Waldenberg told the Post that what horrified residents most was the killer's targets. She said, quote, grandmothers are the most fragile, most vulnerable members of society. When grandmothers started being killed, society was deeply affected. The murders generated much more outrage than other killings in the country, end quote. So the media coverage had basically been wall-to-wall already, but once the public felt satisfied that the police had finally nailed the real killer, the story got even bigger. There were so many layers to it. Not only was the serial killer responsible after years of police insisting that wasn't the case, but the serial killer was an anomaly in that she was female. Not only that, but this female serial killer had targeted older women, a particularly venerated population in Mexican culture. And on top of that, she'd been a luce libre wrestler called the Silent Lady. I mean, come on now.
2: After her conviction, Baraza took on a kind of folkloric status in the culture of Mexico City. She's been the subject of Telenova TV dramas immortalized in catchy folk pop songs.
0: She also became the subject of countless psychological profiles and studies. Her upbringing fascinated the forensic psychiatry community.
1: As stated earlier, Juana Barazza was raised in a poverty-stricken village, and certainly has a difficult and traumatic background, which often typifies cases of mental disturbance. This is to highlight the subtle yet deeper psychological problems that drove Juana to commit such ugly crimes. Miguel Ontiveros, the criminologist associated with Juana's case, believed Barraza was so damaged by her experiences with her mom that she ended up targeting old ladies because she identified them with her mother.
0: The theory was that she did the math and landed on women who looked about the age her mother would have been had she not died of liver damage in her 30s. While her crimes are, of course, regarded as unforgivable and atrocious... Juana's awful upbringing seems to have won her some sympathy. She's something of a celebrity behind bars. One day a week, she's even allowed to cook and sell tacos, the money from which she sends to her children.
1: Juana is considered to be the first Mexican female serial killer. Society obviously was not ready for such shock. Elena Azaula, a criminal anthropologist, stated concerning this matter. A Mexican woman killing even just one little old lady is virtually unheard of. How much our society must have changed if it can produce a female Matavejitas?
0: Raza briefly seemed to find love in prison too. She made headlines when she married 74-year-old Miguel Angel, another prisoner serving a life sentence for murder. He apparently began courting Baraza by writing her letters that he continued sending her for years, and she eventually fell for him. The two didn't meet until their wedding day, however, and the passion quickly faded. Their marriage ended after one year, with Baraza reportedly telling a deputy that once the couple actually saw each other, the love vanished. To research this story, I had help from Amanda Rossman, my partner over at Grab Bag Collab, where we delve into personality traits of murderers in a show called The Catalyst. She relied on newspaper archives, including some Spanish-language journals that she got online helped translate, and portions of Susan Vargas Cervantes' book, The Old Lady Killer, The Sensationalized Crimes of Mexico's First Female Serial Killer. of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.